This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Good evening, church. Chocha. I've always wanted to just say that. How's the churcha? Can I get a hallelujah? Hey. <laughs> um, it's such an honor to be with you. Um, uh, yeah, I just, I just really want to commend, firstly, the worship team. Um, can we just give them and just, yeah, for Asila. Yeah, we just, we really honor the gift of God on your lives and the way that you usher this congregation into God's presence. This morning at the Afrikaans service, there's really an anointing on the worship of this, of this, of the, this body, this part of the body. And I just feel, I just sensed as we were worshiping that God is really raising up David's. Like there's a fear of man that God is breaking off of us and uh, that we are dancing into the streets. And the word on my heart was just, I will get even more undignified than this. So I feel like sometimes when you want to dance and that fear comes on you, like what are people going to think? I can't even dance. That, um, God just wants to break that off. And as you take a step into that, as you just start dancing and just verloor it, Amper. <laughs> I mean, if you can dance like that on Katy Perry, I want to listen to you. Not Katy Perry, okay. Well, whatever you listen to, then why can't we dance like that in God's presence? Why can't we dance like that when we worship Jesus? Why can't we dance like that when that joy is on us? So thank you so much for just so obediently and so joyfully ushering us into the presence. Yeah. Okay, lekker. So, um yeah, as, a, as George said, this is the fourth time that I've been sharing my story. I don't know who has heard it. Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> so I added some facts. Um, no, I'm kidding. I didn't. I can't do that. But I did decide to uh, make a slideshow. It's the first time I'm ministering with a PowerPoint presentation, and I'm very proud of myself. Donkey. Bye, donkey. <laughs> I just felt like, I just felt like, you know, when you go, you go visit, um, like that girl you like or that guy you like, when you go visit his mom's house, then you know it's serious, okay? You go visit the mom's house, she pulls out the baby album. That's the good stuff. <laughs> um, she pulls out the baby album, and after she's gone through all of the baby pictures, the cheeks, the everything, you feel like you know that person so much better, don't you? Huh? Gets real vulnerable there. And um, so I just felt like I wanted to share that with you tonight. And um, I'm just zooshing up the presentation a bit, adding, adding some bells and whistles. So this act, yeah, we're going there tonight. So that was me. Um, my mom put me next to a doll because I was really small. Um, I'm a, I was a premature baby. And um, so the doll is quite small already. And she put me there to kind of show how small I was. But I realized by the picture you can't really tell. But, okay, I was really very small. Um, but a healthy baby. But not really pretty. Anyway, next one. <laughs> okay. 
This is a this is an interesting picture. So um, I I really struggle. I've been delivered from it, but I still kind of have roots of it, and it's fear of missing out. I have FOMO. Um, just curious. I'm by nature a very curious person. It helps me in my career and in, in acting. But um, so this was taken. We were in conversation. I was part of the adult conversation. It was really interesting. They were talking about politics, and. Um, and eventually I was really tired and I, I started falling asleep, but I didn't want to miss out. And so I kept on like, you know, like, wanneer jy, wat nie mis fang. They call it fang in Afrikaans. Um, and so eventually when I fell asleep, just before my head hit the table, my dad put his hand underneath my head and caught me. Um, and so someone took a picture of that beautiful moment. I wonder how long I was there before I woke up again, but anyway. Um, and this is another picture, myself and my mother, beautiful perm. Perm is coming back. It's making a comeback. Um, so I might look like my mother with my next hair change. Um, and on the right, it's me and my dad. Very handsome, handsome young man, John Travolta looking-ish. Um, beautiful Hawaiian shirt. Lovely. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. So before I carry on, um, um, before I carry on, I just really want to say that with my story, it really is important for me to honor my mom and my dad. Um, they are not perfect. Um, our parents make mistakes. No parent has ever been perfect. Jesus is perfect. The Father is perfect. So with our parents, we grow up in broken homes. Um, we grow up with broken parents. And somehow it affects the way that we view Father God. It affects the way that we view the Holy Spirit. It affects the way that we we view Jesus. And so, um, so Father God comes and he heals those broken places in us. He, he heals how we project that onto him. But it's been a, a journey and we're going to go into that tonight. But I just want to say that they are amazing and I love them. And I'm so, so honored and so privileged to be their only child. <laughs> and that I don't have to share their attention with anyone else. Okay, next one. <laughs> this is a, oh, daddy's um, like a cycling glasses class, beautiful, um, and, uh, and my mom. So this was actually, it's, it's coincidental, um, but this was taken on uh, the set of Fury Fools, um, and my dad came to surprise me, and it was just one of those, those gems. I really didn't see it coming, and, um, and sometimes the things that our parents do also minister God's love to us, like the love of the Father, or, or God's nurturing heart. Um, and then my mom um, I think she felt like it was her premiere um, <laughs> because she really loves, she's like my second biggest cheerleader. Um, Jesus is my first one. <laughs> I wanted to say Andres is, but okay, they'll be in competition. Um, but anyway, so she, she wanted to be an actress, I heard later on. And so God really is also giving her a double portion um, of the favor that's, that's on my life. Um, anyway, next slide. Okay, the, oh, this is how I knew what I wanted to become when I was younger. Like, this is how you know what your calling is. You go into your baby albums, and you see that you uh, love performing, love dressing up. And then in the corner there, um, actually, our dog died, our little Jack Russell. And um, I invited all the other friends in the street to come to the funeral, and I led the service. I read, <laughs> I read out of the Bible. You can really see on my face I'm really serious. And um, I scolded Natasha, the one at the back, who was playing with the other dog um, because she wasn't crying with us. Yeah. 
ik heb een controle issues gehad, maar it's fine. I, I knew that God was going to use me in ministry. Um, so that's really something I can testify of is that I wanted to study theology. I really always kind of felt called to the missions field or to, to be a, to, to into ministry. Um, acting is full-time ministry for me as well. But um, it's amazing to see how preaching was always a big love of mine. Um, like in high school when I did Wuppenunga. <laughs> and so I wanted to become a, like a pastor because of that. And God is actually marrying the two. And that's a big, a big honor for me. Anyway, next slide. These are just um, highlights um, from my life. Um, that was when my mom and, um, and Douglas got engaged after 20 years. My mom found someone again. Um, I was at the School of Creativity at Bethel last year where God really released a lot of courage and uh, creativity. Um, my first time in New York, the last scene of Free Fools. And um, there at the top left was supposed to be a picture of um, me and Andres. And um, so I'm just going to ask him to stand up. Yeah, yeah. Like he was in Stellenbosch last. <laughs> they say a Proverbs 31 woman honors uh, the man at the gates. So and also, um, no, but anyway, I was thinking we've seen Van Stellenbosch last year, so I'm just reintroducing him. Anyway, okay. Um, so though these are glimpses of my life, and you may think, oh, it's so self-indulgent. See what I had. So, uh, um, the thing is that. The, the things that happen to us and the things um, that form part of our lives and even our parents, the, the job that we do, the, the course that you are studying, these things do not define who you are, actually. It may look like that, but what actually defines us is our history with the Lord. It's the time spent within the inner room that you have sought the Lord with, your, with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and, um, and what he has has bestowed upon you, and that is identity. And so um, I found these pictures on my camera roll, and um, I realized that these are the moments that have formed me. It was encounters with Jesus, special and holy moments that where I was busy journaling and I took a picture of it, or um, a prophetic um, art that was given to me, or um, when I was driving from um, Los Angeles to Reading, it's a 10-hour drive, and I was thinking, oh, it's a happy road trip with me and Jesus, and it turned out to be a 16-hour drive where God really actually uh, revealed so much stuff in my heart, and it was it was really actually a very special and a holy, like, encounter with him. Um, and just like being encountering Jesus on the carpet at a conference. I don't even know who took that picture. But um, these are the things that define us. This is what defines you. It's what God says about you. And so you can either tell the world, I'm an actress, I'm a lawyer, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a pastor, I'm in ministry. But that is not your identity. Your identity is what God has said to you in your inner room. The moments where he healed you, the moments where you looked into his eyes and he, he looked at you and he said, this is who I say you are. And so there's this beautiful moment in... um. In, in Matthew 16, where um, Jesus and Peter have this, this, this moment. And um, uh, so, uh, okay. um, so it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, but what about you? 
who do you say I am? So the thing about Jesus is he didn't ask them because he was insecure about who he was. Or he wasn't like, oh, what are the, what are the people saying about me? You know, they're gossiping or what, what, what. It's not, he, he tested their hearts. Because what Jesus does is he makes it personal, right? He immediately cuts to the core and the intentions of your heart. And he's like, okay, so that's who they say I am. And that's what they are saying. And that's what they are believing. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I can almost imagine Peter, this like passionate, um, impatient kind of disciple that has a lot of my attributes. And he's like, you are the the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, (laughs) but blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, no longer Simon, no longer the old creation. You now know who I am. So I tell you that you are Peter. You are a new man. You are a new creation. And uh, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the irony of that scripture is that Peter was not a rock. <laughs> Peter is not steadfast. By the time that Jesus says that to him, he's actually quite unstable and very emotional and very irrational and not very loyal. <laughs> so who Jesus says that you are usually is who he created you to be. And the more that he says that about you and the more that you inquire that of him, the more you start believing him and the more you become that. You know? So for me... I, for my entire life, I've, I've, all I've known is almost like insecurity and rejection and abandonment and depression and walking, even walking into church as a student and being so insecure and so aware, self-aware that Jesus in that moment met me and he said, Simonai, you are steadfast. You are a rock. I'm sending you to the nations. I give you my word. I'll put you on display. I give you my glory. I'm intimate with you. You are precious. You are beautiful. You are chosen. That's what Jesus says, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what you believe about yourself. And so that's why the inner room and intimacy with Jesus really is the only sustainable thing for your identity. Because everything that everyone else says that you are, it's a stamp that op your gesit wordt, maar het gaan afwas. But when he says that about you, it penetrates you deep, deep, deeply into your heart. And it really stays. It grows like a garden inside your heart. And God, God becomes, you become God's dwelling place where the Holy Spirit resides and you grow fruit and it's this fruitful life for the kingdom. But when we do not spend time with him, when we do not inquire that from him, when it's just the works and it's not the coming back to the center of I'm intimate with Jesus. I'm intimate with the Father. I know him and he knows me. Then we're going to run around. We're not going to carry fruit because we're not abiding. That's just really like the, the cry of my heart this entire week, actually this entire month. That's just what God has been bringing me back to is intimacy. The keys, the keys that Jesus is talking about. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I believe that's intimacy. It's the knowing of the Father. It's the knowing of who I am because that's who Jesus says I am. And so, um, I think, um, it's, it's just a, a well-known fact that, um, 
identity is something that is bestowed upon us by our fathers um, at a young age and from a young age in our houses or in our homes. And I think that's also why I struggled with identity a lot because um, my father and my mother divorced when I was four years old, and um, I didn't see my dad a lot. And so I had to, to seek identity in other things. I had to seek identity in the things that I do, um, especially regarding performance, especially regarding positions, especially regarding um, academic stuff, etc., etc. in relationships. Um, I didn't know who I was until I met Jesus and I had a real encounter with him in 2006 because I did go to church. <laughs> I did go to church and Sunday school and all of those things um, throughout school. And, and even in that, God taught me and I, I grew up with, in, you know, with the word. And then I loved Jesus. But I didn't really know the fullness of what salvation meant. You know, I didn't know what the joy of my salvation meant. Because by then, or at that stage, in 2006, when I was 16 years old, I was so depressed, and life was such a burden for me. Every morning I woke up, I was, it was just such a weight to go and face the world with all of the insecurity and all of the rejection and all of the suspicion. You walk into school, and it's like, well, oh, they don't like me, or, you know, stuff like that. It was so, so confusing as a little girl always felt like I had to fight for my place in the sun. And then um, I, uh, in, in 2006, um, at the beginning of the year, um, or oh, looking back, um, I just have to say that eventually, um, as I started walking with Jesus, the Lord started showing me that I have an orphan spirit that there's something that's holding me back from the, from the fullness of relationship with the Father, and that was that I was still thinking like an orphan, even though he had my heart. And so sometimes there are lies that we believe and that we partner with and that we empower because we agree with them that keeps us as orphans. Because you may have given your heart to Jesus, but have you given your mind to him? Do you have the mind of Christ? Because if our thinking affects our behavior then there must be a wrong kind of thinking if our behavior is not bearing fruit, am I right? And so this really, like, it was such a breakthrough for me when I started realizing that I can give Jesus my heart over and over again, but if I don't give him my mind, if I don't give him my thoughts, if I don't embrace the mind of Christ and start thinking like Jesus thinks, I'm not going to become a changed person. I'm not going to walk as a daughter. I'm not going to believe that I am worthy. I'm not going to believe that I'm worthy of the cross even. Well, I'm not worthy of the cross, but he decided that, and now I agree with him. I'd rather agree with him than the enemy. So this orphan spirit has kept me from my destiny and has kept me from my calling and has kept me from fullness and, and from life for such a long time that I've, it's my life mission to root it out at the core. Like, I will go after this thing because I hate it. I literally despise what it's doing to the body. I despise what it's doing to the church, what it's doing to sons and daughters, keeping us from inviting others to the table, keeping us from going out and being like salt and sprinkling us among society because we keep to ourselves. We want to stay like this because it's safe, but that is actually still an orphan mindset. And so the Lord started liberating me from that in 2006 at the beginning of the year when I found out that um, 
that it actually started for me in my mother's womb. My mom and my dad uh, became pregnant um, in 1989. And uh, my mom was in the Air Force and my father was in the Army. And by that, or at that stage, if you were a woman and you became pregnant in the Air Force um, without being married, you immediately would lose your job. Um, by that stage, my mom was in the Air Force for 12 years. She built herself a career. She was the assistant to the head of the Air Force, General Galdenais. Um And so if she lost her job, she would have lost everything that she kind of built her life on. Um, and she didn't have something to fall back to. Um, my dad came from a very status-driven home. Um, his father was, you know, high up in church, and um, yeah, his reputation and, and just his identity was was also for him like the pride. The pride was kind of the the problem. Um, anyway, by then they decided that they should go for an abortion, or that my mom should go for an abortion. Um, so they visited uh, the first abortion clinic, and the doctor. Uh, knew my mom's general somehow. He said, are you Tinky? And um, he said, but you are, you are General Galdenais' um, uh, uh, daughter, assistant. And um, he just became convicted and he said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. If the general finds out, then I'm, he's, he's never going to forgive me. I do not know how the general knew him. Anyway, Mokisaki. Um, the second time they went to a, a clinic, they went to one in Lesotho where it was an underground abortion clinic. Um, and when they came there, the doctor was overseas for research. So he wasn't there. Um, the third time that they went, oh, no, 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 sorry, they went, and then the receptionist looked in her diary, and she made an appointment for the next Friday, 2 p.m., really apologized profusely and said that, you know, it won't happen again. Sorry for the miscommunication. The third time that they went, the next week, Friday at 2 p.m., um, when they arrived, the police closed down the abortion clinic that morning at 10 o'clock because it was an underground abortion clinic. And I'm always like, hands for Jesus. <laughs> Just give him a hand. I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> anyway, um, I got saved before I got saved. <laughs> also, spoiler alert. Okay, <laughs> Um and then the fourth time that they that they went back to an abortion clinic, the doctor said that uh, my mom is already 12 weeks pregnant and she would have uh, there would be health consequences for her. Um, it's just too late. Um, they really thought about it further and they decided to give me up for adoption. Um, I already had a family. There was someone that um, or a family that wanted a, a baby girl. And my mom went for therapy because you have to go for that with a social worker. And the social worker was filling out the documents for the adoption papers. And um, excuse me, uh, she said, she just stopped um, in the middle of the last session. And she said, Tinky, I'm not supposed to say this to you. But um, I just really feel like I should tell you that you, like God has a plan for this. And you would make an exceptionally good mother, like you really have the attributes of an amazing mom. Are you sure you want to do this? And uh, my mom became flustered, and she looked at her watch, and she's like, I'm sorry, I need to go. I'm going to get a traffic fine. The parking meter is running out. And, uh, and she kind of ran out of the room without signing the documents and without um, filling out the rest of the, the, the papers. 
Um, and then a week later, a month too early, on the 18th of May, 1990, my mom went into labor, uh, which is obviously a month too early, which is why I believe I'm not good at math, because I feel like if I had one more month, everything would have been fixed. Um, I probably would have been taller as well. Um, good at math and good at athletics. Um, anyway, on the 18th of May, 1990, my mom went into labor all by herself. Um, there was no one around. And um, she said to me last week that um, it was actually like the, it was one of the first and the most tangible encounters that she had with the presence of God as she was giving birth to me um, because she felt so alone and yet she knew that everything was going to be okay. And then she gave birth to me, and the gynecologist who, um, who caught me, or the doctor that, that delivered me <laughs> and caught me, because I, I was so blind, I was so blind. The gynecologist that delivered me um, didn't know that I was an adoption baby. And so, uh, because her gynecologist went overseas for holiday, because it was a month too early, <laughs> and that gynecologist didn't know, and so instead of taking me out of the room, he put me onto my mom's breast. And you're not supposed to do that when you have an adoption, you know, when your baby is, is up for adoption. Um, the next day, my mom and two, and two of her friends went to the, um, the, the baby room, and uh, they picked me up, and I just cried profusely. And the one, um, the social worker, she was there. She passed me on to my mom's best friend, Tani Jackie. And I was crying, trying to console me, and it didn't work. And eventually, they looked at my mom, and they put me, ploops, into my mom's arms. And um, my mom says, I stopped crying, and I just looked at her like this. And uh, just there, I was just too cute. And she couldn't, she couldn't give me away. I mean, how could she say no to this? <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> But anyway, um, later on, when, when I went through healing and when the Lord started del like delivering me from this orphan spirit, from abandonment and from rejection, he actually showed me this picture where, um, where I, was, I was kind of like out of it. Um, I was looking in on, on what was happening on that day. And uh, as I was passed on from the one lady to the next, um, and I was crying, I was feeling like your spirit is alive, you know. Um, my spirit was very aware of what was going on. My spirit knew. And um, feeling abandoned and feeling rejected. And as soon as they put me in my mom's arms, the Lord showed me that as a baby, the reason I stopped crying was because I was looking into the eyes of Jesus that stood behind my mom. And I think that's what happens when your eyes meet Jesus. Is that everything feels okay and everything feels, it feels like home again, you know. And it was in that moment that my mom decided that she would keep me. And she named me Simone. And later on, we found out that the name Simone actually means God hears. And so God heard me in my mother's womb when I cried out to love, and he answered my prayers. And so later on, um, my mom won the first case in the Air Force um, as, a, as an unwed mother. Um, and she was the first lady to keep her baby and to keep her job um, in the history of the South African Air Force. Because by then, a lot of moms gave their children away for adoption or went for underground abortions because they wanted to keep their jobs. And so God literally made history through my mother, uh, which is such a big honor to, to be associated with a woman that God just used. Yeah. 
So um, even though my, the story is pretty miraculous and it's, it's pretty amazing, when I found out in 2006 that I wasn't wanted <laughs> and that my parents literally tried to get rid of me four or five times, it felt like the carpet, the carpet was, was ripped out, um, out of my, uh, from under my feet. It felt like my world was shattering to pieces. I'm... I felt so abandoned and so rejected and so unwanted and unloved and unchosen that I was battling the worst depression of my life. Like my friends were worried about why they didn't make the netball team and I was worrying about why was I even alive? No one wanted me. And so carrying that spirit of death around that was spoken over me in the womb was, was a very, very big burden. And I knew, I knew the Lord, but I didn't know him. And so in 2006, I had an encounter with Jesus that changed my life forever. And uh, we were at a Winkelspreit camp. It was um, at a Tiefberger. It was still like the worship leader and was very intimate. And um, the Lord really moved in such a powerful way. And uh, they actually put a rope up in the, in the big room. And they put it up from one corner of the room to the next. Um, and they gave us all tiny pieces of string. <clears throat> And um, the tiny pieces of string, they said, represented our lives, and the big rope represents Jesus. And they said that um, Jesus is, is the vine and we are the branches, and unless we abide in him, we cannot bear fruit. We cannot do anything. Jesus continuously invites us to abide in him, abide in me, abide in me, tie your tiny rope or your tiny piece of string to the big rope, and I will give you life, and I will give you fruit. And yes, there will be pruning, and yes, there will be disciplining, but it's because I love you, because I want you to bear more fruit. And everyone was very happily, um, happily, you know, putting their strings to the big piece of rope, um, kumbaya and happy clappy and jumping and pulling out of the room. And I stood there. It was almost like 200, 300 people. And I was left alone in this big hall with my tiny piece of string and Jesus and a lot of anger in my heart and a lot of bitterness. And I just knew that I had to do business with the Lord because I was so depressed and I was so suicidal that I didn't have any hope. And it was almost like Jesus became my last resort. And so if you are at a place in your life when you are at utter desperation, when nothing else relieves your pain and relieves your suffering and gives you hope, I want to tell you tonight that you are at the best place that you can be. Because in your brokenness, God crashes in and he saves. And that verse that says he, he took me from the miry clay and he stooped low and he picked me up and he made me great. David says he put my feet on a rock. That's exactly what God did with my life because I was in the gutters. Emotionally, I was absolutely broken and wrecked. And I stood with my piece of string and I, I felt, I suddenly felt the love of the Father and the love of Jesus that filled me from the top of my head to the tip of my toes and it felt like fire literally going through my body. And I knew that I felt so loved and so seen for the first time in my life. And that night... God said three things to me, and I'll never forget it. <coughs> he said to me, um, I've loved you before you loved me, and I have chosen you before you, you could choose me back. And by that stage, I, I knew the word, but I just, you know, like kind of skimming through it in Sunday school. And later on, <laughs> 
funny enough, I found it in Ephesians 1 verse 4. I'm like, oh, God spoke to me through scripture. I didn't even know it was in scripture. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoptions, ach, ach, as for adoption to sonship. I got so upset Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Did you know that it's God's pleasure and will to call you a son and a daughter? Did you know that it's God's pleasure and will to put the adoption papers in front of you and say, I want you so badly, just sign it. I'm inviting you to the table. Just come, just come. It's my pleasure and my will. Even before you were born, before you were created, I wrote it down that you would be mine. I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. And I'm choosing you. And even if you never choose me back, I'm still going to want you. I'm not an insecure God that I put my love out there. And when you reject me, I walk away. God's not like that. When he says he loves, he loves. And it's a steadfast love. And it's a strong love. And it doesn't, it's not insecure. So when Ephesians says that he chose us to be adopted as sons into the kingdom, it means that there's a transaction that should be taking place. One from orphanhood to sonship. Am I right? And so the second thing that he said to me um, is, I will turn your purpose, I will turn your pain into purpose. I do have a plan with your life. And at that stage, I was so hopeless and so depressed because the one thing I really wanted to know was, God, do you have a plan with this? I, it feels like I can take anything as long as I know that you, you know what you are doing. And you know, most of the time, God is not intimidated by your pain. He's not intimidated by your questions, as long as your questions don't redefine his goodness. All right? So circumstances may never dictate what we know to be true about his goodness. We stay true to what the word says, and the word says that he will work everything together for the good of those who love him. So circumstances say one thing. Circumstances said one thing to Joseph. You are in prison. Your brothers abandoned you. Your father didn't even come to look for you. But he said to his brothers when he forgave them, he said to them, um, uh, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So the hope that God puts in you is that your pain not only serves a purpose for his redemption in you, but also for the nations to see that he's a good and a redemptive God, the saving of many lives. So what you are going to do is that you are going to push through the pain. And you're going to press in for intimacy so that God can turn it around and many people can be saved. It's not about us anymore. So let that be the hope that is put in front of you. Let that be the joy that is put in front of you. Like Jesus that endured the cross for the joy that was in front of him was us. So we go through pain and suffering for the joy that is set before us. And that is that many other lives will know him. And then the third thing that he said to me is forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. And so if Jesus proclaimed that in Luke 23 verse 34, where he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It immediately models a lifestyle of forgiveness to us. Because Jesus will never ask you to do something that he's never gone through. And he went through the worst type of rejection and abandonment that any human being can go through on earth. And um, I was really struggling with that. I was really struggling to forgive my father 
in all honesty, I, I get so hysterical for years and years and years. I just felt like God, but he doesn't deserve it. My mom, mom, they don't deserve it. They abandoned me. They didn't want me. They just, they're not emotionally invested in my life or, or whatever our excuses, because we so easily become victims of our pain. The orphan spirit says to you, you are a victim. You are a victim of your circumstances. You are the product of what other people did to you. And that's a lie in the name of Jesus. That's not true. That is not the gospel. In the gospel, we no longer blame shift. In the gospel, we no longer point fingers and say, God, they, they made me like this. Because in the, in the garden, Adam did that with Eve. And God didn't honor that. It's like, that is victimhood. And that is slavery. But a son stands proxy and says, okay, God, if you can forgive, then I will forgive. And because you have forgiven, I will forgive. So we extend that to other people and we see them grow into the goodness of God when we release that over them. And so when, when I struggle to forgive my dad and I struggle to, to really experience the love of a father, God said to me, you are putting an expectation on someone that won't be able to fulfill that need in your heart. And they can't because they are human. But God longs, longs, longs to reveal himself to us in that place as a father that loves so ridiculously well. So he said to me, if you take that expectation off of him and you put it on me, I will make your wildest dreams come true. (laughs) I will take you on such a journey and such an adventure of sonship in my house. I will heal you. We will have so much fun. But I want to be your father. Let me be your father. Let me be everything that you need. Let me fill every emotional need. Let me be the husband that you are waiting for. Let me be the wife that you are praying for. Let me step into that place where you have this need, this unmet need, and you keep on looking for it in relationships and in other things. And God says, I want to fill that need. Can I fill that need? And so forgiveness sets us free in such a measure that we can start seeing people the way that God created them to be. And, um, and in these three things, God really started to heal me and really started to mature me into identity and into sonship. And it still is a journey. <laughs> it still is a big journey. I will be perfect one day when Jesus comes back for me, for us. It's coming for all of us. Where's <laughs> <laughs> by the way? <laughs> But sanctification will be complete the day when Jesus arrives. But until then, I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm going to hold on to his cloak. I can't so claw on his mantle that he will not be able to take one step to the left or to the right. Because I want to be like him. I don't know about you. But I want to be so whole that when the world looks at me, they'll be like, this is impossible. How can someone love so well? Because that's what I see when I look at Jesus. How can someone love so well? It's because he's a son. It's because he understands his position to the father. He understands He understands what a son looks like. So when I become like Jesus, I, I understand how I am to live out to the world. And so God started from 2006 as I gave my life to Jesus. I surrendered everything. Can I also just say that you cannot just invite Jesus into your heart. It's way more serious than that. It's like you lie on your face weeping and trembling and, and, and 
begging for the Holy Spirit to fill every part of your being because you can't live without him. Because you so you are so desperately hunger for him. So that is when Jesus really like takes up residency in your heart or in your heart, a residency in your entire life. And it changed me. And by that stage, nothing else satisfied but him. And it still is that, that's still the truth today. And so, um, as God started revealing his father heart, his father heart, his father heart to me, um, and as I grew in intimacy with Jesus, because Jesus came to reconcile us to the father, am I right? The cross is a bridge into the presence of God, blameless and full of confidence <laughs> that we can, we can appear before the, God, before the father without condemnation, right? How, I struggled so much with that. Boldly, I can access the throne room because of Jesus. And so through Jesus, we, we get to know the Father, and the Father reveals our identity to us. And so he started showing me what an orphan does versus what a son does. And it completely blew my mind when I realized, oh, okay, what I'm doing now feels wrong because oh, it comes from a place of lack. It's actually from an orphan mindset. And then, oh, this, this is what sonship looks like because I'm full and so I give from that place. I'm not striving. I'm not performing. I'm giving because I'm connected to the Father and I understand what love looks like. And so um, the old creation, which is the orphan before the cross, the old creation um, acts like an orphan, and the new creation acts like a son. The old creation acts like a slave on the father's property, wanting to work for him, expecting punishment, expecting abandonment, expecting criticism constantly, having to work for his affirmation. And the son um, know that he doesn't have to strive. The orphan fights for a place at the table. The son invites others to the table. The orphan feels that God is far. The son trusts the father even though he doesn't see him. The prodigal goes out and he squanders his inheritance. And he comes back and the father receives him. The older brother was still an orphan though he was in the father's house. Am I right? Because entitlement is also a sign and a fruit of, of an orphan. Because you can be in the father's house like the oldest brother and still expect the fattened calf and the party and the mantle and the ring and the celebration. And what did God say to him? What did the father say to the oldest brother when the oldest brother was moaning and crying and feeling sorry for himself? He said to him, but, but you were with me this whole time. You were in my presence. You lived in my house. Your younger brother was gone. He left us and now he came back. So true sonship always seeks the presence of the father. True sonship finds it, its identity and its contentment knowing God, in the knowing of, of, of the Father. And so we can still be older brothers and expect others to just, oh, they'll come back to church. Oh, they'll, okay, no, they, they're just, oh, sorry, fella. And actually, a true son goes out and fetches the younger brother, like Jesus did. Jesus stepped in as the older brother. Complete sonship, without entitlement, stooping low and serving, coming for the prodigals. And so there's this thing that, that I see in church, there's this thing that I see in myself, where I look at the Father and I'm like, it's not my job, it's not my responsibility. And then the conviction comes and I'm like, near. 
God sends us as the older brother. God sends us as those who know him to go and show that to others, to come and invite them to also feast on his goodness and feast on his father heart for them. And so that's what Paul talks about when he talks about sonship in Romans 8 verse 15. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. But there, there are certain words that are so crucial for me in the Scripture. It says, um, slaves make you live in fear. So you fear the Father, you fear punishment, you fear people, you fear yourself, you fear everything because you are stuck in slavery. But then adoption happens by the spirit of adoption, and everything you do is not from fear again, it's from faith. Because there's, there's a difference. And then it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And, um, and someone went, well, I, I read up that, that the, the Hebrew for that word for Abba in the original text is not daddy. It's dada. And I, I just had this picture that, that toddlers um, run around, you know, and they say, daddy, daddy, daddy. But infants, like some of the first words that infants say is dada. It's so primitive. It's so, it's so um, desperate. It's so dependent. And Paul says that when we receive the spirit of adoption, we start saying dada. It allows us to look at the Father and to run to the Father with all of our needs, so helpless, still in nappies, not trying to fix ourselves, not trying to clean up our mess, not trying to figure the world out, but in absolute, absolute, absolute dependency on the Father. And I just saw this picture earlier that of, of a son in the father's arms, like, like an infant, so close to him that you can literally smell his fragrance. Fragrance of Christ, the fragrance of salvation, the fragrance of grace. And I want to ask you tonight, as the worship team um, steps up to minister to us, are you still regularly in that place where you call him Dada? Are you still intimate with Jesus? Like the fragrance that you, that you smell, is it still his? Or is it filled with the aroma of idols? <laughs> Someone else's fragrance. The fragrance of the world, the smell in the streets. Or are you completely intoxicated by the fragrance of the Father? Are you so close? Do you want to still be so close to him that you can literally smell him? That you know his heartbeat for you? Because I can promise you that what carried me through depression, isolation, um, comparison, self-sufficiency, I can, I can alles in die boek opnoem, I went through all of that. I feel like if I had to tick every, everything on that list of orphanage, I can tick all of them. I was so broken, so incomplete, and so needy. But what a place for God to crash in and change my life. 
And that's what he wants to do with you tonight. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.